Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. The Country Hour goes international today for you. Well, we'll go to America where the President is trying to address a decline in farmers. Over the past four decades, we lost over 400,000 farms in America. I came to office determined to change that. 400,000 farms in four decades. How do you change that? We will hear the President's pitch today on the program. Also, should you get paid for your farm data, particularly if that farm data is going to be used as a supermarket or food processor's green credentials? As more governments legislate towards net zero targets to, of 2050, some farmers, particularly those in the UK, are suggesting that they should get paid for the information they provide to companies to prove their net zero. I'd be really interested in your thoughts in that. Should farmers be able to make a buck off reducing greenhouse gas emissions and basically selling the information that proves that? You can tell me what you think. Right now, let's go to Emma Field, who has rural news for you. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day Warwick, making rural news. We're going to start in New South Wales where fire authorities suspect at least 30 properties have been affected by fires near Coffs Harbour. Beekeeper and captain of his local fire brigade, Glenn Locke, lost all of his halves when the fire hit about a fortnight ago. It comes after he was required to euthanise more than 70 hives during the Varroa outbreak in Nana Glen. Glenn says he was just starting to rebuild his hives after the Varroa outbreak. I think I was the only commercial beekeeper in that red zone that lost all their bees. Yeah, I lost everything. And, I mean, how did you even go about thinking about starting again back then? I just wanted to get going again, and I, I knew I couldn't do it anywhere near here because if this zone grew, I wanted to be well away. So, you know, 70 k's up at Nimboida was, was ideal, and so, yeah, I jumped at the chance to go up there. Yeah. I really didn't expect them to get taken by the fire. It just um, sort of, oh, shit, how am I going to... How am I going to get myself out of this one, you know? It looked pretty grim. started talking to more and more people, and I realised that people wanted to help me. put a little video up on my YouTube channel of just, just what had happened, just to let people know what had happened, and then, yeah, just the, the support I got from there has just been overwhelming. I can't believe it. Yeah. The guy set up a, a GoFundMe, which is just going off a pet. I can't believe it. Um, so the, the support is really coming from the community, the local community and the beekeeping community and the RFS community. Still on fires, but this time in Queensland's east at Hewenden, where a fire has been burning at Wombi Station for a few days. Grazier Clancy Middleton says they tried to fight the blaze, but it's still out of control. That got pretty scary, and one part there, young Clancy and Bo, got pretty bad where they were, and we said, we've just got to get out of here. We, somebody going to end up not good. Mm. And it's in the basalt. You're not racing around anywhere. You're just trying to get to it and beat it and... But a lot of feed there. Yeah, Clancy, and how much property do you think has been burnt out during this fire? Oh, I wouldn't like to say I haven't been up in the chopper, but like it's in the fair light. I see this morning there's hot spots right over to Collindale. So we're talking tens of thousands of acres then? Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, no, it wouldn't surprise me. It's up around 50,000 acres burnt now, and that's till today. And today we've got 41 degrees, you know, and the wind change coming up. 
Turning overseas now, Ukraine's embassy has revealed some grain is still being exported from the country, despite issues getting the grain out of ports due to the war with Russia. Since the beginning of the implementation of the Grain from Ukraine program, about 170,000 tonnes of wheat has been shipped to countries facing challenging food situations, including Ethiopia, Somalia, Yemen and Kenya. And the WA government will pay almost $180 million to settle a class action bought on behalf of thousands of Aboriginal Australians who had their wages withheld. The class action was bought by Kimberley Stockman and artist Mervyn Street, who worked on stations for most of his life and was not paid a wage until he reached his 30s. His complaint was regarding a policy in place between 1936 and 1972 that allowed the state government to withhold up to 75% of an Aboriginal person's wage. Mirrawong elder David Newry gave evidence during the class action on behalf of his family who worked at Ivanhoe and Newry stations in Western Australia's East Kimberley. Well, I mean, I can't get any more joyous about it, you know, and I think um, it's about time that they um, recognise something like this for the hard work that our people have put, you know. It's a worthwhile thing, you know, and and for to really point out that um, our people were the backbone of the cattle industry. You know, it's all to do with the effort that our people have, have put and through hardship, you know, our people were just basically treated like a um, slave. Has it been difficult for you to be part of this court case process? You know, the the hardest part for me was talking about my family, how they've been treated in, in court, you know, where, where one of my father's father brother got tied to a tree and got whipped for not hopping on a horse that morning because he was um, really sick in the stomach, you know? Mm. And and that kind of thing, uh, that sort of information was really um, hard for us to, to to tell other people about it, you know, especially in court. And still in WA, a sheep farmer says the dire sheep market is leaving producers with no options. Newnigate farmer Bob Ifler says he's struggling to get rid of more than 8,000 sheep off his property. We've been trying to get uh, space in the abattoirs so we can kill, kill a lot of the sheep, get them, get them off the farm. We have actually taken some of the sheep to sales and actually we didn't even get a bid on them. They were young ewes. We took them to Wickham and Sale and it cost us $7 to get them there and $3.50 to get them back. And that wraps up Rural News. Thank you very much for that. Emma Field there with Rural News for you today. Work along with you on the Country Hour right now. And we're going international right now because we'll hear about other countries' farming policies that really relate to situations that we have on the ground here in Australia and indeed in Victoria as well. We'll start in the US. The President of the United States, Joe Biden, has made his pitch to stop a mass exit of family farms in his country. Speaking from a barn at a family-owned Dutch Creek Farms at Northfield in Minnesota, the President promised more than $5 billion in funds for more competition in meat processing, programs for more job growth, and what he has termed climate smart agriculture. It's a wide-ranging plan that's trying to address similar problems to those being faced by Australian farmers. I am beyond honoured to welcome and introduce President Joe Biden. 
Standing next to a green tractor and in front of a large American flag at the farm of Brad Kluver, President Joe Biden laid out his plan to stop the exodus of farms in his country over the decades. Hello, hello, hello. Over the past 40 years or so, we've had a practice in America, economic practice called trickle-down economics. And it hit rural America especially hard. It hollowed out Main Street, telling farmers the only path to success was to get big or get out. Tax cuts for big corporations encouraged companies to grow bigger and bigger, move jobs and production overseas for cheaper labor, and undercut local small businesses. Meat-producing companies and the retail grocery chains consolidate, leaving farmers with ranchers with few choices about where to sell their products, reducing their bargaining power. You know, in part because of these conditions, over the past four decades, we lost over 400,000 farms in America. I came to office determined to change that. So that's the problem. What is the president's solution? Well, $5 billion in programs were announced to stop family farmers leaving agriculture and start getting younger people to return to middle America. The president says it's his type of economics that will deliver the best outcome for agriculture in America. And the money's there to help farmers and ranchers tackle climate crisis through climate smart agriculture and cover crops. Nutrient management. It's not great. And sorting carbon in the soil. Under our plan, farmers can diversify and earn additional income just selling into the local markets. Let me give you an example. When a farmer sells his commodities normally, you have to go through the grocery store and the farmers get about 18 cents for every, every dollar they have. Sometimes they get less than that. Some, some, but, but when a farmer sells locally, the farmers can get anything from 50 to 75 cents for their same exact product. We're also promoting competition in agricultural markets. Just four big corporations control more than half the market in beef, pork, and poultry. And because so few companies control so much of the market, if one of those processing plants goes offline, it can cause massive supply chain disruptions, slowing production, and cost farmers big. It happened to Brad. When processing plants shut down during the pandemic and he had to rely on social media to sell us hogs. Folks, look. There's something wrong when just 7% of the American farms get nearly 90%. 7% get 90% of the farm income. When I took office, I decided to invest a billion dollars through the American Rescue Plan in small and medium-sized independent meat processors to expand their capacity. Today, I'm proud to announce new funding that will go directly to rural communities. One billion dollars to fix aging critical rural infrastructure like electric water, like electricity, water, wastewater systems. We're investing millions in building new bioeconomy and with homegrown biofuels to be able to achieve it. And folks, this is just a start. Today I'm announcing we're investing nearly two billion dollars to help more farmers adopt practices to fight climate change and earn new income. 
We're investing $145 million for farmers and rural communities to install clean energy technologies like solar panels and lowering electric bills. An additional $274 million to expand rural high-speed Internet even further. Two billion to support communities in our rural partners network, which puts federal employees on the ground to help rural communities take advantage of the federal resources, let them know what they are and where they are. Minnesota was chosen because Joe Biden's first challenger for the Democratic nomination of the presidency is coming from Minnesota. So the president was at pains to push for rural American voters and support ahead of his push for re-election, which is to come next year. When rural America does well, when Indian country does well, we all do well. That's the President of the United States of America, Joe Biden, ending that report and ending his speech from Dutch Creek Farms at Northfield in Minnesota today. And it's already been remarked on social media. It's interesting seeing a uh, a leader of a country do a speech from a machinery shed with not the newest machinery in it. And of course, these things are probably chosen very carefully but it was interesting to note that in itself wasn't the biggest and the best uh music to my ears says this text uh to hear the u.s president mention cover crops get on it so there you go uh joe has been a politician the entire time Four hundred thousand farmers exited what a hypocrite says this text as well thank you for sending those in we're going to the uk next on the country we're about to talk about whether Farmers should get value from their data, their potentially uh, their green, especially I should say in this case, especially their green data, their green credentials. If they lower emissions and supermarkets or food processors want that data to prove that they're lowering their emissions, should farmers get paid for that information? Some of your texts coming in are really interesting already. Uh, Jack in Wodonga says, those greedy conglomerates should pay uh, Nigel Investor says, G'day, was data? Why not? Uh, why not? And is his thought on that. And totally was, says Stephen. There is a financial cost to measuring, collecting and providing the data to document the emission status or procedure of produce. If other companies are then using the information for commercial gain, there is no reason why farmers can't sell the source information. There are plenty of legitimate companies slash businesses that collect and sell your data, e.g., Facebook, Google, etc. It has a commercial value, says Stephen. Thank you very much for that text, Stephen. Keep them coming. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. I'm interested in the in the Australian experience. Should farmers get paid for the data they provide? Let's go to the UK, though, where a debate is roaring in the United Kingdom over the climate data farmers collect and who should pay for it. Supermarkets and other buyers of food are under increasing pressure there to reduce greenhouse gases under legislation, and will talk to you about that in just a moment. They also need to prove how they're doing it. And that often means farmers are being told to change and report back to the buyer with their carbon credentials. Tom Clark is a farmer from Cambridgeshire in England, growing wheat, oats, potatoes and sugar beet. He says it's coming to a head in his country and he wants to see farmers get paid for the data they collect. 
We're in an interesting position because um, uh, having come out of the European Union, um, our subsidies are being cut. So we're going to be in the same position as you are in Australia. Um, and and the, the payments uh, that are coming to us are all linked to environmental works, basically. But on top of that, we have this law about um, becoming net zero across the entire economy uh, by 2050. And in order to get there, uh, a lot of um, supply chain companies, so supermarkets, but also food producers and well, every company in, 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 the, in the economy is having to um, account for their carbon uh, and, other, and other things, pollution generally, um, in, in their uh, reporting. And it's becoming into law. So they, they have to, uh, and it's a technical term, they're called scope three. I'm sure it's much the same uh, terminology over in Australia. Their scope three is what they buy in through their supply chains. And obviously that comes down as everything always does to the farmer at the bottom of the supply chain, bottom, you know, figuratively and and at bottom of the food chain. Um, and, you know, as with everything else, all the costs of the supply chain get put down onto the farmer because we are the ones that have to take the prices and uh, there are too few of us uh, to have any market power to sort of force other people to put their prices up. So, so the concern is that um, all the extra work that will have to be done to produce our carbon and, and possibly increasing our costs uh, will will just be taken for granted. Those companies further up the supply chain will will benefit in that they can have access to their markets and possibly even charge premiums for more environmentally friendly products. But the the farmer won't see any of that and will just be lumbered with with more cost. Yeah, so supermarkets or food processors effectively will be using yeah, UK food producers. Yeah, using UK farmers to improve their environmental standards without paying for them. That's the concern, yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I don't need to lecture anyone. <laughs> you don't need a Ponzi Brit to tell you, uh, guys in Australia, about, you know, the very real challenges of climate change. I mean, I don't take that away for one second. You know, we're all facing really extreme weather all the time. Uh, and, and the things that used to work on farms for us don't work anymore. And I, I take it very seriously. I think I said to you before, my farm is already two metres below sea level where I farm. And it's only, you know, the... the, the, the the, the man-made um, earthworks and stuff that keep me dry. Um, I don't need things to get any worse. Uh, and I do think we do have a moral responsibility to, to make farming uh, more uh, climate-friendly, more environmentally-friendly. Uh, but do we do that, uh, you know, as a charity, uh, as, for the good of mankind, uh, you know, out of our own pockets? Or is it fairly rewarded uh, by those that are gaining value from it? And that is, I think... The key, you know, uh, we, we shouldn't be expected to do this, you know, at, at, a, at a cost that makes us unviable or uncompetitive, especially when, you know, imports can come from the likes of South America, which, you know, are, are very productive agriculturally. But, um, you know, they are they are cutting down the, the rainforests to do that and destroying, you know, so, so, so the environmental footprints of those sort of imports aren't, aren't accounted for. And, and then we are loaded with extra costs that we're not rewarded for. In your view, what would be a better system in terms of farmers' data about their carbon pr- footprint and who should pay for that? So I think there's only one way to, to fix this, and that's actually uh, for farmers, and this is harder for English farmers probably than many others, uh, to, to work together, to come together and, and share that data with either each other in some kind of farmer organization or, or pooling it into some kind of independent organization. And it's called, I mean, if anyone wants to Google a data union, 
that's exactly what a data union is. It's, it's the information that companies all want from all of us uh, all the time to help their businesses work. And actually, um, it, it, you, you give it not to those companies that want it, but to some other body which can then sell that information on. It's the way to capture the value for the people when you become a member of the union. And so that's my own personal view. Um, and But it applies, you know, across the, across the board. That's the only way farmers can gain their market power on their commodities or anything else is by working together because we lack so much market power in these transactions. Uh, we are so many and so small, we can't make any impact on the market price or, or anything like that, especially on commodity markets. And we're producing something that can be so easily substituted by someone else that the only way we could possibly gain any, any market power is by collaborating, working together and, and gaining it that way and being able to buy other bits of the supply chain. Now, if we can, if we can do that with our carbon data, own that data and then if people want it they they have no choice but to buy it from us that i think is probably the the one way that i can see that that might actually return that value back to back to farmers the accounting for that the the, the work in the in the office so to speak to to add up the numbers is it is it a lot of work is it something that you should be paid for because of the effort being put in I think I'd start from a different place. I don't think it's, it should be a cost basis. I think it's the value that what you can produce has to other people. And that's how you should measure what you get paid. Um, the value, the carbon itself that you save has a value and you can sell that on, on the trading market. Um, why not the data about the carbon, which has value to people? There'll, there'll be people further down the supply chain that need that, require that information in order to sell their product. It has a value to them. Now, if that takes you five days and endless spreadsheets to produce it, or if it takes you five seconds because you know it off by heart, it doesn't change the value to the people who want it at the other end. And some of this has come to a head over the recent weeks in the UK with the Red Tractor organisation, almost a, a label to ensure British farming to, to consumers. Can you explain a little bit about Red Tractor and this green tractor idea and what has farmers concerned? Yes, Red Tractor is, is so we, in the UK, we have something called farm assurance. Now, uh, farmers uh, in other countries, I believe we're the only country that has farm assurance as opposed to trade assurance. Uh, but basically, our farmers um, are audited annually and have to fulfill certain standards. And once you are accredited as a Red Tractor farm, then you can, you can sell your produce uh, down the supply chain. Uh, that organization isn't farmer owned. It's it's a it's a it's a private but not for profit company which has farmer representative organisations on the board, but also a British retail consortium, and they are trying to be two things. They're trying to be quality assurance for the product and making it traceable, uh, and 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 making sure it's up to standard, but also a brand uh, to consumers. Uh, so it, it covers not just uh, cereals, which is what I'm concerned, but also livestock, meat products, dairy. Um, and, and, and that sort of, it, it's used on packaging in supermarkets as well. And they're trying to make it uh, a sort of uh, British standard mark at the same time as also being a quality assurance just to get market access. And that's where I think a lot of the confusion comes from. And they've got this idea for, for a green tractor, which would improve environmental sustainability. Yeah, but does that require farmers offering up their data for free? So the details on this are uh, sketchy. But yes, essentially, the, the, uh, my understanding of what they're proposing, and this has been uh, promoted by the retailers 
on on in that organization rather than the farming organizations um a while ago that because i mean farmers uh, are facing ever higher sustainability criteria uh food products the same uh, and they tried to increase the standards that farmers had to achieve across the board that was uh heavily pushed back on but the retailers still said you know we still need to be able to prove this stuff for some of the reasons i talked about earlier about their scope three emissions uh and, and being able to trace uh the environmental footprint of their products so they have come back without really consulting the farmers and said we're going to do uh you know another level of assurance here and it's going to be a green tractor like you say and it's going to say that um, your product not only meets the standards for quality, but is also uh, attaining some standards around the environment. Um, and it's not clear that there would be any extra margin or um, premium for that work. And the, the fear of British farmers is, is really that this would amount to giving away all that value as a sort of market access payment rather than, um, as in us, supplying that information to gain market access rather than uh, a reward for the value of the stuff we've provided. But is that going to bring a, a, a lot of this to a head in terms of that debate between farmers and retailers and what's expected of who? I think you're seeing that now. Yeah, it's happening as we speak. And actually, so it's been it's been on um, what used to be called Twitter uh, in the UK, but actually uh, some of your Australia farmers have picked up on it as well and said this is exactly the same issue that you're facing over there. So I think this isn't just a UK issue. This is something that farmers across the developed world uh, are having to, to deal with. That's Tom Clark, who is a farmer from Cambridgeshire in England. He grows wheat, oats, potatoes and sugar beet as well. Talking about the debate over who owns what farming data and should farmers be paid for it, especially if companies are going to use that data to prove that they are heading towards net zero in 2050, for example. What do you think about that? Should farmers get paid for that? You can send us a text 0467 842 to send us a text on the country. Our 0467 842 What's more exciting than the biggest little show on earth? How about a whole festival of Bluey? It's got to be done. Shake it, chilly. <laughs> the biggest little Bluey countdown is coming. And you get to vote for your favourite episodes. It's not typical. And it costs zero dollar bucks. But hurry, because voting closes at 9am on Monday. Pick your best for Bluey Fest. Bluey Fest. Vote now at abc.net.au slash kids. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's get some regional news headlines right now on the Country Hour. Natasha Shapova has those details for us today. Good afternoon, Natasha. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news. Police arrested Erin Patterson this morning in southeast Victoria over the deaths of her former parents-in-law, Don and Gail Patterson, and Gail's sister, Heather Wilkinson, in July. Erin Patterson has always maintained her innocence and said in a statement prepared by her lawyer in August that she did not deliberately poison her relatives when she cooked them lunch at her Leangatha home. Police have spent the morning searching the home and a garage on the property with the assistance of federal police sniffer dogs. The Melbourne County Court has heard the man who had a seizure behind the wheel which resulted in the death of a woman in Horsham last November was confused by doctor's orders not to drive. 
Brandon Rayburn believed he was clear to drive despite the advice of his neurologist to wait six months after commencing new seizure medication, his defence lawyer told the court. Police say Victoria is expected to record its highest yearly road toll since 2016, with 237 deaths recorded so far. Northern Victoria has recorded several crashes this year where four or more people have died and three teenagers and a woman were also killed in the southwest. Construction will begin next year on a $3.7 million upgrade to Warrnambool Base Hospital's emergency department. The upgrade will include more space in waiting rooms and improved patient amenities, including gender-neutral toilets. And the owner of a pharmacy on the border of Victoria, New South Wales, says he's already struggling because of the federal government's 60-day prescriptions policy. New dispensing rules allow chronically ill Australians to receive double the amount of certain medicines for the same price, but pharmacists say it's not sustainable. And that's the news. Thanks, Natasha. Natasha over there with regional news headlines. You're listening to The Country Hour. Coming up, we'll hear from large East Coast uh, storage and handling grain company Grain Corp about their expectations for the Victorian harvest, which is a reminder to me to tell you if you're out and about harvesting and you don't mind sharing your data, <laughs> send me a text. We can get photos now. Would love to see what you're up to on the farm. Doesn't have to be just grain harvest, it can be a bit of hay work or anything you're doing around livestock, etc., on the farm, maybe picking fruit. Send us a text 0467 842 722. Happy to take those texts whenever we're on air for the country air. Send them through whenever you'd like to tell us what you are up to. John in Harrow actually on the text line on data, on the issue of data and whether farmers should be getting money for that. We're increasingly being asked to provide data that will ultimately be used to penalise farmers, either by limits on markets or straight out new taxes, says John in Harrow. Thanks for sending that through, John. Let's go to Joanna Hughes right now, though, and find out what's happening weather-wise around our state. Blue skies out of my window here in Shepparton. I wonder if that is the situation we've all got today. Joanna can tell me. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Warwick. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Blue skies. Is all of Victoria getting that today? Uh, people in northern Victoria are certainly getting some, some blue skies today. People in southern Victoria are enjoying a bit of cloud about this morning, but uh, it is looking to clear up on the satellite at the moment, getting some little patches of sunshine looking like they're going to be sunny, uh, sh- shining through this afternoon. And a couple of fluffy little clouds developing up over the, the ranges as well. So um, it's pretty settled otherwise, though. And this morning we did see some um, some cooler temperatures about western parts of Victoria, um, not really getting below zero, but uh, still pretty pretty chilly around um, parts of the Wimmera and sort of northern parts of the southwest district um, the, early this morning. And uh, as we head into the rest of the week... Yeah, settled um, the word for it. <laughs> well, settles the word for the sort of first half of it and then um, gets a, a little bit interesting later in the, in the piece. So uh, we definitely have settled conditions, um, as you so rightly put it, um, for the next couple of days. Um, so we've got that high-pressure system that's sitting in the Great Australian Bight at the moment, um, and that's just directing um, that, that uh, southerly flow over Victoria, which is leading to the, uh, the cloud in the south and, uh, and clear conditions up in the north. Um, but looking to um, clear up slightly on, on Saturday in terms of that cloud in the south as those winds turn a little bit more south to southeasterly. And then Sunday is when things start to warm up a little bit. So um, fairly cool temperatures for, for today and tomorrow and into Saturday. And then Sunday warming up a little bit 
um, again, as, the, as those winds start to make that turn. And it's as we head into next week that um, it's a bit, of a bit of a shift. So things are really starting to, to warm up by, by next week. So if I have a look at the, um, the maximum temperatures here for the start of next week, by Monday we're getting up to um, 34 on the forecast for Mildura um, and, for, and for places up in the northwest of Victoria and sort of 30 degrees fairly broadly um, around the northern plains, um, around the ranges themselves, sort of sitting in the high, the high 20s, um, and in southern parts of the state, also in the sort of mid-20s. So that's for our, our Monday temperatures. And then as we're heading into, into Tuesday, um, those temperatures are warming up a little bit more. And um, we do have some thunderstorm activity on the cards as well with those, those warmer temperatures. So um, once this sort of southerly flow Moves, moves away, we have um, a trough that's sort of extending over northern parts of the state, um, and that's bringing some unstable, unstable air, so we'll see the potential for some showers and thunderstorms. So that's from Monday, and sort of the, the conditions are looking fairly similar sort of Monday right through to Thursday next week with that, um, that unstable air, so possible showers and storms mostly focused around um, the eastern ranges in Victoria um, and parts of the central districts as well, but looking to stay fairly dry and warm in northern and western parts of the state right until the end of the forecast period. Um, and that's the sort of the general story. So cool, cool and uh, southerly winds for the next couple of days, bit of a shift starting over the weekend, and by next week um, probably feeling a little bit more, more summery with uh, some potential thunderstorms and those warmer temperatures creeping in. Yeah, and so warnings-wise, really Friday through the weekend, we're not expecting much, Yeah. No, not expecting much um, on on the warning front. Sort of uh, not cold enough for for frost warnings, and um, there are some uh, some potentially elevated fire dangers about northwestern parts of the state, um, but uh, not getting into sort of warning territory. Um, but just something to be to be aware of because it's going to be fairly uh, warm and dry up in the northwest. Um, and otherwise, yeah, pretty quiet on, on the warnings front. Any of those, um, those thunderstorms are looking to be pretty benign, sort of um, just springtime has sprung, I suppose, Warwick. <laughs> Anything else I need to know, Joe? I think that's pretty much it from me today, Was Beautiful. Thanks very much for the update. No problem at all. That's Joanna Hughes there, uh, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the next few days in the forecast. I think we've opened a can of worms when it comes to farm data and some really interesting things coming in on the text. This from a dairy farmer saying, milk companies have dairy farmers' volume and quality data on a daily basis. Dairy Australia then collates that and we're charged a levy for it. Think we've been sold up a proverbial river. Uh, I'll take that as a comment. Thank you for sending it in. Susan says, Hi Warwick, Birchip Cropping Group did a study about five years ago on the value of farmer data funded by Agriculture Victoria. Could be worth a recap of that. wonder if anything's changed in that half a decade. And it again goes to the point of, of trying to get that value back to the farm gate too. That's the interesting bit about Susan. Great information. Thank you for sending that through as well. Let's Speak about data right now, and we'll head to some dryland producers in Gippsland who were singing in the rain last month. Uh, those east of there, though, had still well below average rainfall. Uh, Orbost got 30 millimetres less than the October average of 77 millimetres, and that means for farmers there, drought strategies are still being prepared. Agronomist Nicole Frost says feed budgeting is in the front of mind for many farmers. 
So I suppose recently um, feed budgeting has been uh, top of the list for a lot of people. Uh, we did have a, a dry season forecast um, and probably still do. Uh, there's been some localised rain that's probably taken a bit of pressure off producers, but I suppose coming back to our, um, our core feed budgets and looking at what we have available, either what we're growing or perhaps the fodder reserves that we do have on hand, um, and then cross-correlating that with our animal requirements. So just calculating out what animals need um, in terms of dry matter, so just you know total intakes um, versus energy and protein requirements. When we talk about feed budgeting, are we talking about financial budgeting or actual um, feed on hand? Yeah, great question. Um, so we can certainly um, cover both. So what we're looking at to start with um, is, is the feed itself, um, so in terms of quantity and quality. Um, but then if we are actually looking um, even to make our own and costing that out um, or certainly to purchase it, we can actually start to put that financial information behind those quality parameters and, and help producers work out what feed source might be the best value for what they require. Now, parts of Gippsland have had a very wet October. Um, some folks mm-hmm. have had sort of in excess of 200 mil, but are you saying that there's still quite a lot of concern about dry times ahead? Yeah, there is. Um, unfortunately, we had a, a very dry end to winter and the start of spring. Um, so for some producers, and particularly in, um, in our lighter coastal soils or um, hill country, a lot of it had dried off before we got that rain. So although the rain has sort of created a bit of green tinge on paddocks, um, we certainly haven't been able to take advantage of that big spring flush um, that we would normally get. So, you know, we're, we're just sort of, I suppose, in some spots, really desperate for the next lot of rain to keep things ticking along. Hit and miss, depending on where you are, I guess. Um, and so what is your advice going into drier times? I think it's maximising what we have on hand. So, um, you know, do we have um, pastures that may still be responsive to fertiliser? Um, for example, if we've got a fodder crop in, um, trying to maximise the potential of those um, and actually seeking any opportunities that we have, you know, with any uh, maybe forecast rain um, and, you know, getting in a fodder crop ahead of a good storm or um, just capitalising on, on what we do have available. And then if we can start completing some of these feed budgets, we'll actually identify any deficits ahead of time so that we've actually got time to plan and we're not just reacting once we run out of feed. I suppose that's my, my biggest tip is to just, yeah, be looking ahead, get into the practice of looking ahead. There's quite a lot of materials being published at the moment from groups across Gippsland about how to manage in, in drier times. Is there any mm-hmm. um, materials that are planned to come out of the Gippsland Agricultural Group? There is at the moment. So we're actually working on a drought trigger template, a drought trigger plan, and that will run through basically what I've discussed um, so far, which is working out our feed availability, so our pastures and our crops, um, taking stock or an inventory of any um, fodder reserves that we have, and then calculating our um, livestock requirements. Once we know that, we'll be able to work back and look at how long these feed reserves are going to last for, and then we can set ourselves some plans and some dates um, to take action if there is going to be a deficit. So hopefully we'll have, a by the end of it, um, a really valuable tool that producers can use and, and implement on their own farm. That's uh, Peak Pastor and Livestock Agronomist Nicole Frost there speaking with Fiona Broom. You're listening to The Country Hour. Let's talk harvest now. As harvest starts in Victoria, Bulk Handler Grain Corp 
is preparing for volumes on par with last year's bumper crop of more than 4 million tonnes. In fact, Victoria is the only state in Australia expecting a similar harvest size to last year. It goes to what we experienced during the floods, I think, more than anything last year. But Nigel Lotz is the General Manager of Operations with Grain Corp. He says while yields in northern areas of the company's footprint are well back, Victoria will be a production powerhouse. Yeah, look, it's uh, certainly the excitement of harvest has stepped in, which is good. Uh, it started early up in Queensland in mid-August, uh, which is certainly a sign of uh, you know, it's not going to be the year that we've had for the last few. But uh, going all the same, uh, moving very quickly through Queensland into northern New South Wales, uh, quality is holding, uh, teams are doing a good job, pretty good site turnarounds. But now finally, uh, Victoria and southern New South Wales starting to kick into gear. So looking forward to seeing some you know, some bigger tonnages. Uh, Victoria certainly is shaping up to be a very similar year to last year, which is great. How much grain have you taken so far? Oh, look, we're pushing through a million tonnes pretty well today, which is which is good. You touched on quality, obviously, last year, huge tonnages around, but a lot of that grain particularly in the wetter areas, was was rain-affected and not very good quality, but uh, much better this year? Oh, yes. I mean, it wasn't all downgraded last year. There was It was always surprisingly better than we thought it was. And that was part of the challenge of last year, that you know, we thought it would all go to the lower grades, which is in the end is probably easier to handle in terms of segregations. But uh, you know, quality did hold up through the last couple of wet years better than we expected. And speaking of those huge tonnages from last year, just driving around, you do still see uh, plenty of blue tarps with grain under them from from last year. How have you gone clearing out that uh, carryover grain? Oh, look, a big task. Yeah, we've had a, a you know, two massive export seasons in a, in a row, so uh, ports like Geelong have been flat out. But uh, that that is part of our pre-harvest prep is is consolidating and getting moving as much grain as possible to where we feel the grain will be coming in to to satisfy the needs of the harvest receival. And are you confident in Victoria in those uh, really good areas that you'll have enough room to accommodate that grain? Oh, look, we hope so. No doubt some areas will fill up, but uh, that, that is a good sign as well uh, for the season and for growers. But, uh, you know, we do have a wider network, so the key here is as things move, um, you know, we, we do focus on harvest overflow movements in terms of train movements straight to the port, and then, um, you know, we communicate widely with the growers in terms of if, if a site is filling up, what the alternatives are, trying to service their needs as well as possible. And I know uh, last year particularly, or even the past couple of years, harvesters all sort of come in at the same time from Queensland through to Victoria. That's been a problem for some of those contractors who typically work the harvest trail and and for the likes of yourselves with uh, moving staff and moving machinery. But this year, as you said, already wrapping up in central Queensland, is it going to be more of a a traditional season where you will be able to to move the the workforce and the, the grain handling machinery down south as as harvest marches south. Yeah, definitely. Look, it's it's a return to more normalised pattern. Um, anyone after harvesters and trucks is seeing that they're more readily available. For us, um, yeah, the harvest casual requirement is, is significantly less. And with our mobile equipment fleet, which we do move down the east coast, just means a more orderly fashion. And this year, we're certainly going to get the benefit from the big investments in the last couple of years. Of course, Grain Corp is just one grain receiver and the, the various receivers are always uh, jostling for uh, to, to secure grain. I see Grain Corp is offering, I think, free storage through to the middle of next year. Is that that part of uh, trying to be competitive? Yeah, look, we're always trying to be competitive. We're, we're out there in the market buying a lot of grain to meet our customers' uh, needs and that's that's great for the demand for local growers in terms of what we offer um, the free storage period extension has been a 
well received in the grower community. That just gives the, the grower more time to have a period of no costs uh, while it's in the network. And whilst in the network, then you know, all marketers then can you know, bid for that grain um, utilizing Crop Connect, um, which is it's like the eBay for grain in terms of the pricing mechanism and the, the pricing tension that it creates. Um, and also from a few years ago, we've got the, the quick payment turns in two days. I know a common gripe among farmers is uh, sometimes inconsistency in some of the, the grain testing, which dictates the grade and, and hence the price that they receive. Uh, there was one example, I think, where someone got a sample of canola tested at Grain Corp and got a really high uh, impurities result, then went to the competitor next door and got a much lower result. Uh, is that a problem that uh, grain sampling and testing isn't always consistent? That's something we're always um, working on and on top of, and it is a variable product. And for those who have been to a sample stand for a trailer, you're getting three probes. Um, There can be a a chance that you hit a a pocket of uh, particularly canola where the admixture and the straw and the husk can build up in a certain spot. That that can sway the result. Um, We do offer a second test to to look after the grower as best as possible. We do invest a huge amount here in terms of the training of the teams to get standardization and consistency and technology uh, from the last, it's probably six or seven years now, the fast way technology in terms of more, the, the, the quantity of measures in terms of proteins and moisture and uh, admixtures and things like that are, are done uh, with electronics. Um, even this year, we're brought in uh, with, a, it's one of our investments from Ag uh, Ventures, uh, Zoom Agri, which is, we're, we're trialing this uh, optical recognition for malting barley varieties. So we're very aware of it. We're trying to take the human factor out of it and the variability, but it does happen, unfortunately. Uh, and hence, like I said, we, we do offer to do another test and uh, yeah, to do the best job possible. Okay, so take that, that human error, that subjectivity where you're asking someone to, well, for example, identify weed seeds in a sample. You're trying to take that out of it? Yeah, ultimately it'd be great to do that and there is technology, but when you've got 187 operating sites in a big year, eight ports, the multiplication factor of that investment is huge. So the key is to get something that is economic across all of the East Coast of Australia for us. As an industry on the whole, everyone is working towards this. Um, if you could just have it so everything was optical, uh, that would be fantastic. That's Nigel Lotz, uh, Grain Corp's General Manager of Operations. He was speaking there with Angus Verley. Speaking of businesses and speaking of businesses that operate in the Murray-Darling Basin, that's where we'll go now. Food processors in the basin say jobs are on the line if the federal parliament passes the bill that extends the basin plan without any further amendments. A delegation representing Fruit Canner, SPC, Sunrise and the dairy industry pleaded with senators yesterday to understand the impacts of the decision they will make before the end of the year. Fruit Rice and dairy are staple supermarket products and the producers of them have warned senators that the extension of the basin plan and the promise to buy back more water would harm their farmer suppliers, their communities and their business. To add uncertainty to it, you're you're almost pushing people to to try to exit their business or exit the industry and go into something that's a bit more a bit a bit more stable or a bit more predictable than that. Hassan Rafai is the chair of SPC Global in the Shepparton Valley and the Goulburn Valley. We're the largest buyers of fruit in the area, and I could tell you if we, for example, go away and we invested a lot of money in there, so we don't go away. If we go away, there'll be a significant impact on the farming community. At the low season, we employ about 450 people. At the high season, we employ about 1,000 people. And that's directly. 
and then indirectly, for example, we are 30% of the busy canning plant which is down the road from us. If we stop taking cans from them, they become unviable. The, a lot of what's happening is you also using the young generation of farmers. His comments were echoed by the dairy industry, who said the amount of milk being produced in Australia continues to shrink. Janine Waller is the Executive Director of the Australian Dairy Products Association. We have got a number of pressures, most of which is that we have the lowest uh, raw milk production that we've had in 30 years. So we're sitting at 8 billion litres and that's on the top of input costs. We've got uh, global commodity prices that are dropping. We do have a raft of cheaper imports coming into the country. And the biggest challenge with that is that you're seeing these cheaper cheese and butter products on the supermarket shelf. So there's about a $2.50 price differential between the price of Australian milk prices versus New Zealand prices. Sunrise, which has had to mothball or shut rice mills during times of low water, like the millennium drought, added its concerns as well. CEO Paul Serra. We employ on average 650 people in the region and inject more than $500 million in payments locally. However, if, as we referenced earlier, the ABARES report that pricing was to go above $200 a megalitre eight out of ten years, all of a sudden what the climate and the current water markets say is perhaps two or three years out of ten where it becomes uneconomical. If you start talking about six, seven, eight years out of ten where it becomes uneconomical to grow large quantities of rice, then it does put the entire industry at risk. And so there are tipping points that I think we should carefully understand and I really urge the Senate to take the time to understand those tipping points for each of the industry and to do the impact assessments of what that looks like so that we can come to I think a balanced outcome on on reform and and ongoing uh, industry. All three businesses referenced the COVID restrictions that saw the lack of food being traded around the world and shortages of things like rice, tin tomatoes and other products in Australia. SPC Sassan Rafai says it's a matter of food security. Obviously it's going to impact significantly on our prices which will go to the consumer and frankly could put our business as well as the farmer's business that we buy from at risk because we, can't, we are already at a cost disadvantage for a variety of other reasons. This will just add to our disadvantage in terms of competing against cheap importers coming from everywhere from China to Italy to everywhere else. The Senate's Environment and Communications Legislation Committee is examining the Water Amendment Restoring Our Rivers Bill 2023 and is due to report next week on the 8th of November. After that, the Senate will be voting on the key extension to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria couple of your texts coming in. Uh, this one from Marty saying, Was there? I'm doing grain assessments, doing frost assessments across West Wimmera to the Golden Plains. I don't want to rain on Grain Corps Parade, but there's plenty of impact from the various frost events. Marty, always valuable information. Thank you very much uh, for sending that in. And a beautiful photo has come in uh, from someone cutting silage with a third plane flying in the background the fertilizer plane flying in the background at berries creek looks amazing thank you for sending that one through zero four six seven eight four two seven double two if you want to send us a photo of what you're doing on farm i'd love to see it uh it is just nice to feel like i'm out of the studio sometimes speaking of getting out of the studio let's get out of the studio and into the sale yard 
We'll start with the sheep and lamb market reports and we'll go into state for that today. Wagga Wagga has Leanne Dax on board. Leanne. Good afternoon. 41,000 lambs and 17,100 sheep sold to most of the usual buying group, along with an uptick in restocking competition. Quality was again very mixed with big numbers of store lambs and hoggets. The market for trade lambs fluctuated and buyers did pay a premium for freshness. Trade lambs are unchanged to a few dollars dearer, making for from $86 to 138 averaging 518 cents a kilogram carcass weight. 24 to 26, 125 to 140, 26 to 30, 140 to 168. Over 30 kilos, 160 to 175. Reno lambs, $44 to 74. Old trade lambs, 56 to 112. Heavy old lambs, 110 to 171. Merino hoggets, $27 to 91. Crossbreds, $50 to 78. Store lambs lifted 5 to $10 at the better end. Plain stores, $31 to 42. Lambs with weight and frame, $45 to 92. With the sheep yet to be sold, Leanne Dax, MLA. Thank you very much for that, Leanne. And lucky last in the market run for today is the cattle market we have at Bansdale. G'day, Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick numbers decreased to 390. That's 70 fewer than the sale of a fortnight ago, with the usual buyers operating in a generally firm market. Quality improved in the cows, while grown and young lots were scarce. The handful of trade cattle eased a little. Grown lots sold firm. Cows were a little mixed but generally firm, with processors loading cows for an estimated 292 to 352 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls held firm. A few trade steers sold from 240 to 270. A couple of heifers reached the top of 210. Manufacturing steers 130 to 166. Most light and medium weight cows 122 to 176. Heavyweights 140 to 187. Heavy bulls 186 to 219. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Brendan. That's about all the time we have for you on the country hour. A couple of texts coming in before we go. Jake's very happy with the Grain Corp report saying he got malt barley last year. Oh, when someone else wasn't offering quite malt. Well, I'll take that as a comment, Jake. Uh, we've been shearing lambs. Just finished. Cheerio, says Stephen. Love that. Thank you for sending that through. Another photo's come in of someone out baling hay today. Still looking mighty green under there too. The bale looks very full. Thank you for sending that through uh, as well. And Jeff, on data, which has been a big conversation today on the country. Earlier we heard from Tom Clark, an English farmer, about the debate going on over there. Farmers want to know if they can sell effectively the data that supermarkets and food processors will need to use to say that they're going towards being carbon uh, neutral by 2050 in their country. Want to know if farmers can get a price for it. Jeff says, already giving away for free in Australia, RSPCA accreditation for pigs and poultry is data collection that farmers pay to satisfy supermarkets. Once again, we're getting the rough end of the pineapple. Jeff, thank you for your text as well. You can keep them coming. If you want to send more detailed thoughts, you can always send us an email on the Country Hour. Countryhour at abc.net.au is how you do that. Countryhour at abc.net.au. And remember, you can always listen to the Country Hour podcast wherever you get podcasts. Share it with your friends. If you want to share some of those interviews with your friends, just grab it or get in the ABC Listen app and send it to someone. Catch you tomorrow.